Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat with your host, Andy Storch. The show is dedicated to helping you develop the most important part of your organization, the people. If you are in HR or talent development, or you just want to learn how to get the best out of your people, then you are in the right place. This podcast is designed to give you what you need to be successful in the world of talent development. Now, here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I'm your host, Andy Storch, and I'm really excited that you are joining me today. I've got a great interview for you with Amy Edmondson, and I know many of you out there in the talent development community have heard of Amy and are fans of her work, especially if you have done work to build a culture of psychological safety in your organization. You've probably come across Amy's work or maybe read her books or studies. Google famously made a major shift towards psychological safety based on a study they did, and they based some of that on Amy's work as well, which we mentioned in this interview. But for those of you who are not familiar, Amy Edmondson is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School a chair established to support the study of human interactions that lead to the creation of successful enterprises that contribute to the betterment of society. Amy has been recognized by the biannual Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011, and most recently was ranked number three in 2019. She's also received that organization's Breakthrough Idea Award in 2019 and Talent Award in 2017. She studies teaming, psychological safety, and organizational learning, and her articles have been published in numerous academic and management outlets, including Administrative Science Quarterly and several others, including the Harvard Business Review, of course, and her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth, offers a practical guide for organizations serious about success in the modern economy and has been translated already into 11 languages, probably more by now. She has other books, such as Teaming, How Organizations Learn, Innovate, and Compete in the Knowledge Economy, and Teaming to Innovate and Extreme Teaming. So she's studied teaming a lot and now moving quickly into this area of psychological safety, which we know is very relevant to the times we live in now. Just a note that we recorded this interview back in June of 2020, right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, and so we do address that and talk about it. Then we're publishing this a couple months later. So I just want to make that clear, as well as how organizations have adapted with people working remotely under COVID-19, which is something we're going to be seeing for quite a long time. 
As always, I really appreciate you listening. I would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other listeners find the show. And you can access all of our episodes with transcripts and show notes and links to everything that is mentioned on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. We'd love for you to check that out. And shout out appreciation to our sponsor, Advantage Performance Group, which helps us host this podcast and has provided many great guests to the podcast as well. All right. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Now, here's my interview with Amy Edmondson. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world, and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am excited because I am live, recording this live on LinkedIn today with Amy Edmondson, who is Novartis Professor of Leadership at Harvard Business School and the author of the book, The Fearless Organization and others as well. Amy, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for having me. Really, really great to have you on. I've heard your name mentioned many times by different people I've come across in the talent development world, especially in this when this topic of psychological safety comes up, as well as modern leadership, that sort of thing. So excited to get you on the show. And I'd love to start with, you know, maybe just a little bit of background for those that don't know who you are and maybe how you got to where you are today. And I'm a researcher. I'm a professor. So I sense I have these two hats and they're very different hats. And I think the, the hat of a researcher is the sort of the geeky hat of burrowing into some topic and getting data and running analytics and then spending more hours than anybody wants to know writing and writing and writing, right? And then the professor hat, the classroom hat is the ham hat. It's really being out there and interacting with students and getting into their space and just having some fun pushing them and pushing the envelope and sort of pulling the learning forward. So those are my two primary hats that I wear. And I've been at Harvard Business School for about 24 years. Before that, I worked in consulting and before that as an engineer. So it was a, a gradual transition over about a decade uh, to that recognition that I really was an academic at heart and then headed in that direction. Yeah. Not just an academic, but being at Harvard Business School is sort of the pinnacle, how I think about it, right? And, and yeah. in terms of business schools and studying in business, one or two things do you attribute to getting you to that place <laughs> that kind of puts you near the top of the mountain? I know we're always climbing and with the growth mindset and everything else, but. Persistence for sure. And, you know, I, I want to comment on that pinnacle idea because I actually think HBS is a pinnacle. It's a pinnacle of a particular corner. It's a big corner of business or management academia. I mean, we are at the top of the people who care deeply about what we call rigor and relevance. That means that we want people and expect people to be doing really good work, publishing in the top journals. But if it isn't relevant for practitioners, 
if it doesn't sort of deliver something that can inform managers and practitioners of all kinds to help them do their work better, then we're, we're not interested. And I think it's just a, it's a really nice space to be uh, because you get the depth and the sort of the fun, I think, of doing research, but you're doing it for a larger purpose to have that impact. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you're right. You're in this place. You've got a platform to take that research and be able to get it out there in front of more people, which means you need to make sure that things are highly relevant, interesting to those that are out there. When you start on some type of new research project, where do you start? How do you know that something's <laughs> going to be really relevant to people? Well, you don't. And there are definitely a lot of dead ends and rabbit holes uh, in research. I certainly have a file drawer of things that never made it to the big league. But I have a particular approach, and it's not the approach everybody takes, but mine is I'm driven by a triangle of three things. And it starts, I'm going to put at the top of that triangle, problems, right? Some real world challenge that people are wrestling with and could be a, a range of things. It could be reducing medication errors in a hospital or solving the challenge of strategic decision making in the executive suite, right? But as long as it, it's a genuine problem that people just haven't fully resolve for themselves. And then I absolutely, the next corner of that triangle is I've got to get out there. I've got to get into the field. I've got to talk to real people, real practitioners who are wrestling with this problem. And by the way, know more about it than I do. And this, that combination right there generally leads me to have to spend knowledge boundaries, meaning expertise boundaries, either with people in the field who are practitioners who have different expertise than I do, or with people from other academic disciplines. Because as soon as you get into real problems, they don't live nicely in the silo of the academic discipline. If you're a psychologist, there are things that you sort of need some finance person to help you understand and, and so on. And then in the middle of that triangle is the literature. Now, a lot of academics kind of start with the academic literature and they say, oh, what's the next contribution I can make or brick I can add? And I don't ignore the literature, but it's not my starting point. It's like I get out there, I mess around. And then I come back and sort of figure, oh, what do people already know about this problem? So I read. And when I read what people already know, sometimes you discover, oh, they've already got this. Yeah. Right. But other times you discover, oh, no. in fact, I think they've got it wrong and we can add to it. So it's this very messy iterative process. And I love the pursuit for knowledge and figuring out what's out there, what problems need to be solved interviewing experts, like you said, people that know more than you. I think so many yeah. people make the mistake they're always trying to be the expert when if you just continue on a constant pursuit of knowledge, you know that we never truly know everything, right? And we, we're always looking for more information. Yeah. And the world keeps changing. So even if we thought we knew everything, which we don't, we can't possibly know everything that will be available to know tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of the world changing, you and I are recording this in June of 2020, and there have been a lot of changes going on lately. You were already, you know, you've been seen as an expert on this topic of psychological safety and already speaking a lot with organizations and with Harvard and with the research you've been doing. I feel like there's been a major shift in how people work as we've gone to more remote work starting back in March. And some companies are sending some people back to the office, many are not. And I know you've already written some papers on this and, and had some interviews out there. From your perception, what does that shift look like? You saw it in both in academia. You were telling me right before we started recording that you almost had kind of a seamless shift from the classroom to yeah. doing things virtually, right? I wouldn't okay, say it was right. seamless. I would say it was quick by yeah. necessity, but we had to do it. And yeah. of course, everybody else did too. So that's actually been a good thing because I think we have, or at least I 
have empathy and some experiential understanding of what people are up against when they are suddenly sent to work from home. Now, I think people like myself um, periodically stayed home. You know, if I'm deep into some data analysis or into some writing, sometimes that's the best place to be is home, free from from all the noise and all the interaction. But And other people have certainly had that and maybe even thought, hey, this home thing is pretty nice. But yeah. when it's day in and day out and not an end in sight, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. And there were so many other elements as well. I mean, I've been working from home from this home office for about six years now, but this was the first time I also had small children here at the same time, my little coworkers <laughs> who would burst into my office in the middle of interviews and meetings and other things going on. But the interesting thing is thinking about this idea of inclusiveness and you know, people have been talking about bringing your whole self to work for years. I feel like we really are now because I'm seeing people's real true lives. I'm meeting their kids and their pets. And a lot of people have told me that that has kind of changed the game with the interactions that people are having with their colleagues. You know, like it or not, it's made us more vulnerable. And I, I think that's largely good right? because we have a, everybody or most people have a work face, a kind of a, a little bit of a facade. You put your work clothes on, yeah. you put your work face on, you go in, you might talk about your children, but having them run through your interview is a whole different <laughs> kind of story. So we have by necessity found ourselves having to be a little bit more open about what's going on around us, what we're up against. And some of that is a really good thing because we're seeing the humanity um, in each other and we're getting experience lowering a guard or at least some portion of our guard. Yeah. But that doesn't mean this is easy and that doesn't mean it's working perfectly for everybody yeah. at all times. So I want to ask you about this topic of psychological safety, and then we've got some questions coming in as well. If you are watching live, feel free to drop some questions in the chat, and we'll try to get to those. So starting with psychological safety, this is something you've written a lot about. Your latest book is called The Fearless Organization. Can we start by defining that? And then I'd like to talk about the importance and how that has shifted under COVID and people working remotely. Sure. So psychological safety is a describes a climate. That's like a sub part of a culture inside an organization. It's the climate. It's the interpersonal climate that is characterized by a belief that I can say what I really think about the work, right? So that I can speak up. I can ask for help. I can ask a question. I can admit a mistake. And by the way, none of that is easy, right? So if we have a psychologically safe workplace, it doesn't mean it's easy for me to raise my hand and say, I made a mistake. But it does mean I believe and you believe that I have an obligation and more importantly, an ability to do that. And so that's, it's probably the shortest way I can say that is it's a sense of permission for candor. So a sense of permission for candor in the workplace, basically allowing yep. people to be more of themselves, not having to put on that work face or hide or be some certain right. way, which also creates more inclusiveness as well, right? Absolutely. In fact, I think psychological safety is a key element of going from diversity to inclusion, right? I mean, diversity, you can, that's a reality. You can create it if you want to, which you do, I hope, but that doesn't mean you have inclusion, right? Inclusion is the actual experience that I am included. My voice is welcome and I can take that risk of speaking up. 
Yeah. And this notion of psychological safety, I would imagine you've studied how a lot of organizations have done this and probably the ones who are doing it well and the ones who are making mistakes. What's kind of the defining difference? How are certain organizations, we can even think about this maybe in the pre-COVID world, um, yeah. but how, what were organizations yeah. doing yeah. to create that great culture of psychological safety? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is honesty at the top about reality. Now that sounds funny, but when an organization's leaders are repeatedly, sometimes with a sense of humor, calling attention to the reality of the challenges that lie ahead, they are inadvertently saying, we don't have all the answers. We literally need to hear from you. So I call that framing the work. And it's sort of where we, the phrase VUCA, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. If you took seriously that you were in a VUCA world, which most of us don't, meaning we don't take it seriously. We are in it, but we don't yeah. take it seriously. Yeah. But if you took it seriously, you would realize anyone's voice might have that critical idea that is yeah. our next innovation or might see that impending crisis that we could stop if we get on it now. So the organizations that have really taken this seriously are just willing to say, you know, what we know, what we don't know and why we need you to get in there, roll up your sleeves and make it happen. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you about how psychological safety can drive innovation. So many companies are trying to be innovative to avoid being disrupted like so many others have been. And I've studied this a lot as well. And I think there's so much importance around creating an innovative culture, which allows people to share different ideas and stops the notion of, oh, we've tried that. We already know it doesn't work or we've always done it this way, which I think is the number one cause of disruption. Right. And so there's two reasons why psychological safety is absolutely critical to an innovative culture. And one is when you, if you want innovation, you're going to have to have failure along the way. Right? So mm -hmm. you have to then, therefore, not be afraid of failure. Either you just have to sort of accept that a whole lot of the things we try won't work. That's okay. That's part of the process forward. And, and the other is that it's rare that a single person has the winning idea just fully baked. Here it is. Let's go sell it. Right? It's, I have an idea. And frankly, it's not a very good idea, but it makes you think of something. And then this sort of messy failure laden process moves forward and we actually get to innovative output. So if you show me a company that's really good at innovation, I'll show you a company where the climate is very psychologically safe. Yeah, as so many people and companies are spending so much time trying to avoid failure, I like what you bring up there because we learn, not only do we learn so much from failure, but sometimes we need to suggest a bad idea or have a failed idea for other people to see that and go, oh, that makes me think of this over here. And I'm sure you've experienced right, it yourself right. with your own research yeah. when you went down one path and, oh, and yeah. said, oh, someone's already covered this before, but there's an right. angle of this that maybe is not being covered. Right. Or I had a hypothesis for an early study in graduate school that turned out to be dead wrong, or at least the data that I got suggested it was dead wrong. So, but that led me, that wrong discovery led me to a much more interesting discovery. So if, it, if I'd been right, it wouldn't have been as interesting. Mm, and I like that. Uh, so how has this shifted under COVID-19 with people working remotely and now you don't necessarily see them every day, but we still want to create this culture. First of all, I think it's bimodal. I mean, I think there are people for whom just the reality of now being at home, as we were talking about earlier, helping them open up, just be a little bit less anxious about what they say and don't say, because you just can't really pull it off. But it's also the, the anxiety related to the broader picture 
can be much more troubling for some than others. And maybe people have health conditions they don't want to disclose or family situations that they don't really want to talk about. And that's created real challenges. But here's a sort of, you know, more everyday problem, which is communicating like this. Now, this is what you do all the time. All day long. But if you don't normally communicate like this, there's a lot of nonverbals that are lost. Mm. So if you're in a meeting with your colleagues and someone floats an idea, you can just sort of tell by the energy in the room mm-hmm. that it isn't quite there yet or that, that people have something to add. Even just that little motion would say, well, Andy, do you want to weigh in here? Right. But when I've got a screen full of little postage-sized faces in front of right. me, yeah. first of all, I can't be looking at them all at once. I can only look at one at a time. And I can't sort of take in those cues. And so there's an awful lot of data that we lose, visual and tone that we lose, that makes it hard to read the room and hard to know when people are holding back and to sort of when to try to get them more. So I it means that we've, we've got to use some of the tools that platforms like Zoom and, and Teams and others have. I mean, period, use the breakouts, use the polling, use the hand raise functions, like make sure that you actually use them to kind of intervene in what might otherwise become a non-psychologically safe space. Yeah, make full use of all the tools you have. And someone told me that some aspects of this can create a more inclusive environment in that people cannot take up too much space in a meeting, right? We're all have an equal little postage size box. Like you it's true. Right. Yeah. But it still depends on the leader and how they are perceiving reading everyone and including people in the meetings. They need to work a little harder to include people and, you know, use the chat or use the polling because there are meetings and I just heard about one today where a person who was just sort of routinely quiet in this setting ended up having the critical idea that pushed them in a different direction once it got once it came out by using a, a sort of a forced ranking function and getting people to then explain why they thought what they thought. Yeah, I like that. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. Okay, so I mentioned I have some questions coming in on the chat. A couple of them are from Sabina Salat, who asks, how do I convince my leadership of the importance of psychological safety? And the follow-up question is, what do I do when my leaders think our culture is psychologically safe when it is not? Mm, you can never really convince anyone of anything. So what can you do? I think the most important thing you can do is make it psychologically safe where you sit with your colleagues, with your peers, with anyone on your team, 
And you can do that by just the genuine expression of interest in what someone else is thinking. And by the way, that's the most powerful tool you have is the art of asking a good question, right? So just really, if you are there asking people, and you can ask your managers as well, but if you ask people genuine questions that are, what are you thinking about this? What are you seeing? What's on your mind about Project X? I wouldn't, I'm not recommending sort of, hey, what are you thinking about? But what do you think about this issue? It's a gift. It's a human tendency for all of us to look up and say, well, they're not doing it. Almost have to put that in the category of God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and start just doing great stuff where you are and then watch that catch on. And if they're not doing it and you really find yourself in an environment that doesn't work for you, where you can't express yourself, you can't contribute, at some point, you owe it to yourself to find another opportunity. But in the meantime, you might be wrong, right? You might be wrong that they don't want you to take risks or they don't want to hear from you. So I would do those small tests. Just try speaking up with something try going just a little bit outside the comfort zone and see what happens. Like at least test the hypothesis that people don't actually want people to be fully engaged and speaking up. Yeah, I love that. I think one of the biggest mistakes generally across the board people make everywhere is making assumptions, right? Not asking questions, right. assuming that leadership or anybody else is coming from or doing something because of X without really finding out what it is. I talk to a lot of people about this in the corporate world. I run leadership development programs and more and more I'm convinced that curiosity is a core tenet of great leadership. And I stole that from Liz Weissman in her book, Multipliers. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Very. Uh, but I, read, I run a program based on that. And Liz spoke on, at my conference, has been on the podcast. So big fan of her ideas that have come from that. And more and more, I think no matter what the situation, curiosity is one of the biggest you know, things you need to lean on because you never know where people are coming from, why they're acting the way they are, they're acting. Hey, curiosity is our birthright. But the problem is by the time you're a working adult, you start to sort of push it aside and you forget to be curious. And we forget to be curious because we assume we already know. Right? We make those assumptions, as you said. And back to also the making assumptions about the people above you and this tendency we have to look up, I have not once, you know, not twice, but a handful of times been working with groups of, you know, let's just say a company, big company, global company, a handful of them that are one or two levels from the very top. So that means there are maybe 100 people, maybe 14 people above them, and maybe 30,000, maybe 100,000 below them. And they will ask that same question, which which is, well, they're not on board. And I look back and I say, are you kidding me? You are they, right? You are they to thousands of people. And yeah, there's a, either a hundred or a couple dozen people above you, whatever the situation might be. And they're not the problem, right? Just get on it. Just start making it happen where you sit. But it's, oh. it's such a tendency. I love that revelation. You are they. Just put yourself in their shoes. Just think about where you right. come from and how people perceive you. Yeah. People are looking at you and maybe making that same inference. So get on with it. Yeah. And I think maybe the follow-up, I don't know if it's a question or just kind of inference we can make from that is that even if you are working in an organization where maybe the the culture is not as great as you'd like it coming from the top, it's not that psychological safety culture, you right. still have the ability to create that for your team around you. Yes. Right? 
And, and it's actually one of the most robust findings in the psychological safety research is that it exists in pockets, right? It's not, I'm not sure there will ever be a company that's just 100% uniformly psychologically safe throughout. There's I mean, this branch is better than that branch and this team is better than that team. And so what that really means is very directly, probably the most important force are the leaders in the middle not the very top. They matter. And they often, as we all know, they set the tone right. and they can have such a positive difference. But the leaders in the middle don't underestimate their impact. Because they're the ones who are sort of creating that spontaneous climate uh, for voice or for holding back. Yeah. So we got some other questions here. Kelly Durbin asks, we saw many informal leaders emerge and teams during the initial crisis now, as we move to the longer haul marathon of COVID and our new normal, any advice of keeping people engaged and continuing to work for the greater good? You know, it's such a good question. It's such a challenge. And the truth is, we've never been here before. Right? So There's no playbook. There's no playbook. There's no real answer to that question. But I think the most important thing is make it discussable where this gets us, where we start to feel exhausted and even irritable is where we kind of think, this is going to go on and on. And I'm not sure I can do it. And I don't know what it's going to look like or how many of us are going back to the office, how many of us are not. If the sheer duration of this thing is a topic that we feel okay talking about, it lightens the load. It really does. So make this very good question, a shared question. Make it something that we're all talking about and not just to kind of make noise about it, but to truly problem solve together. Like the the answer is not going to be something that we have already in some playbook. The answer is going to be something that we co-create together. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you're following the news and you're involved in talking to organizations and all the latest research, that sort of thing. As we record this, it's been, I don't know, a week and a half since the death of George Floyd. And we've seen protests all over the nation with the Black Lives Matter movement and many companies and organizations stepping up and saying, this is wrong. We're ready to take action. We're ready to make changes. What are you seeing now and what do companies need to do to truly create real equality and, and inclusion? Yeah. I am seeing, and I hope this is right, a very different sense about this. Clearly, this is an issue the issue of diversity and inclusion has been on the radar in the talent development uh, discussions for years. Yeah. But something tells me this really is different. Like we can't go back. We can't just talk. We are going to have to break stuff. Right? We're going to have to really figure this out. And I think that is going to only work and only happen if we approach this issue with enormous humility. And by humility, I mean, we don't know. We don't know a lot. We don't know how to do this. And we don't know, I mean, very literally, whatever group you're in or come from, you literally don't know what it feels like to be in the shoes of someone else. And so that humility then drives us back to the curiosity you mentioned before, which is if I'm genuinely aware of my ignorance, I'm now able to be curious. And if I'm curious, I'll ask questions. And then, yeah. you know, God help me if I don't then listen to the answers. Back to curiosity. And sometimes it's tough because these are awkward conversations, oh, right? I mean, I've 
Awkward is an understatement, right? (laughs) They're awkward and they're scary and it's new territory. And I think there's issues around fear of that awkwardness, but also um, shame. I I certainly experience shame for, I know on so many levels of the enormous advantages I've had in my life that start with, you know, great parents and a great education. And then a lot of access to opportunities through that education and beyond that uh, not everybody has. So, you know, I'm grateful. And I think gratitude is a good place to be as well. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a little bit of, of shame and guilt and pain about it as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, as part of all of this, there's been a lot more conversation and awareness around white privilege, right? And what that, oh, yeah, you know, what that creates, and and what we have experienced or taken for granted throughout yeah. our lives, and you know, unearned privilege, right? It's, it's which is a, a marvelous phrase because it tells you exactly what this means. I mean, there's privilege that a very talented, uh, accomplished musician, say, earns a privilege of being the first violinist, but that's earned privilege. But unearned privilege is definitely given to us because of our race. Yeah, no, definitely. So yeah, it's interesting to see how organizations are shifting and pivoting here. And it's interesting to see how those organizations change, what sort of sticks, what sort of doesn't, if anything. You talked about fear. And I personally, I've been studying this idea of fear for a couple of years now, how it has held me back, how it holds lots of people back, how it causes people to act certain ways. And I think Fear and ego is at the root of all of this, you know, whether yes. it's racism, how people are treated, yes. sort of thing. And there's so much that we can get yeah. from self-awareness to allow us to make those changes. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, fear, the funny thing about change, you know, we joke about change and, and organizational work is often all about change. But that's what everybody, you know, how do we change? But change is hard because we're afraid. Now, why would you be afraid of change, right? Some change can be good, but we're afraid, we're inherently afraid of the unknown because we haven't been there and it might be scary, mm-hmm. it might be, you know, it might be bad for me. And where change seems to imply, and we're talking about big change here, seems to imply we were wrong and bad before rather than we were what we were, right? But so in order to embrace change, you have to embrace the recognition that we don't have it right yet. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we don't know where we're going. And it takes a lot of courage. I was curious why you decided to call your book The Fearless Organization. (laughs) It was a statement of optimism. Mm. So the truth is the research on psychological safety, much like Serena's question implies, suggests that it's much more often absent than present. I admit it, it was harder for me to find the good cases than the bad cases, right? You just open up the newspaper and you'll find yet another example of a company where people weren't speaking up and bad things happened. So part of the human condition and part of the human condition in organizations, she hierarchical ones, and most of them are, is to lack psychological safety. You in fact have to go out of your way to build it. But I didn't want the title of the book to be psychological safety. First of all, that sounds sort of academic and psychological. And by the way, it also sounds a little soft, which this is anything but. You want executives to pick it up. Right. And fearless organization just has, it has an aspirational quality to me. I mean, it's about speed. It's about courage. It's about just going for it, playing to win rather than playing not to lose. Because it's really about what you can accomplish when you put this in place, right? More innovation, better results. Yeah. 
If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Think of it this way. If you go to work, you've got the job you're supposed to be doing for, for, your, for your company, for your organization. Um, you've also got this other shadow job. Right, which is the job of looking good, especially in the eyes of the higher up. Yeah, your reputation. Right? Yeah, and the larger that job is for you, the less time and mental energy you have for the real job. And so the idea of a fearless organization is one in which very little of your conscious attention is tied up in that shadow job. Uh, I like that. It makes me think of something else I heard a while ago, which is about authenticity kind of being the gap between reality and perception and, and the the greater that gap is the more stress it's going to cause people if they it's feel work, like they're going to be right you've got to keep the facade up that's hard work yeah absolutely as we get close to wrapping things up i have a couple more questions for you related to your learning and development space are there any other trends in terms of learning development talent development that you've been following related to all of this Agile is, of course, a big trend. And I think it's by trend, it's moved from first just something that was in the software world to something that every organization wants to be agile. I mean, to a certain extent, that's today's learning organization. But it comes with real practices and mindsets that sort of say, yeah, let's move fast, figure it out, get the data, and always figure out ways to stay flexible moving forward. So I think it's it's an important trend. It comes with mindset issues. It comes with culture issues, lots of talent development issues there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hearing that more and more. Lots of organizations talking about agile. What would you say has been your greatest accomplishment or proudest moment in your career so far? I would say that you know I was toiling away on this concept of psychological safety for a long time, meaning many years. I was doing other work too on teams and teaming. Um, when I woke up one day and saw that the New York Times magazine cover story said that Google had done an extensive study to find out what differentiated high-performing from lower-performing teams. Saw that, well, oh, I better find out, Like, because Google's got lots of data. They're really good at analyzing it. I better find out. This is my bread and butter. What did they find? Long story short, they found, after putting every variable but the kitchen sink in the model, that the factor that differentiated high-performing and low-performing teams at Google was psychological safety. So that was... I mean, it was sort of an astonishing thing to me to read, A, that they had read my paper, used the variable, come to this conclusion. But then, as you can imagine, soon after, everybody read the New York Times article and the blogosphere was alight with interest in psychological safety. So it really took off at that point. And I didn't see it coming. And it was a huge thrill. That's amazing. Was that Project Oxygen? I think that was Um, No, it was the next one, Project Aristotle. Okay, got it. Very cool. One of your biggest (laughs) failures or mistakes, and what did you learn from it? 
Oh, so many, right? So many mistakes. And you know, some are just garden variety, everyday mistakes, screw up in a classroom or say something I, that falls flat in a meeting. But probably the big mistake that I can point to is that years ago, and this is before I went to graduate school, I was writing a book about Buckminster Fuller's mathematical work. Don't even ask me why, but it seemed important oh, at the exciting. time. Yeah. And in order to, and it was about geometry, synergetic geometry, yeah. geodesic math. In order to kind of support myself, I, I was going to do workshops. And uh, so I did a workshop. It was like an eight-hour thing. And I talked at the speed of light for like eight hours in a row. I mean, the faces glazed over. I don't think anybody took a single thing out of the room. I was so intent on giving them their money's worth, their time's right. worth. I was, I was going to give them every single thing I knew, like it or not. And so I gave them nothing. So that was a, and it felt flat and it felt awful. And I'm sort of like, okay, yeah. that didn't work. How do you teach? You know, education yeah. means draw out. You know, how do you draw out? How do you give yeah. people experiential chances to digest the material and to talk and to engage. So fortunately I never did it that badly again. And I did, I did get quite passionate about what good teaching looks like. Yeah. I love that. I'm very passionate about experiential learning. I've been running experiential learning workshops for years, but very recently a small company hired me and it seemed like they were more interested in my knowledge than the experience. And so I leaned, I think too far that way as well and went into real lecture mode for a lot of stuff. And I, I think I went too far with right. that. And at the end, I was like, I talked way too much. Shouldn't have been. So we live and we right. learn, right? Besides your own, and you've got some great books, another book you recommend that made a big difference for you or that you often recommend in kind of this area of psychological safety, talent development, building cultures, that sort of thing. Oh, there's so many good ones. But the one that comes to mind is Leadership and Self-Deception which doesn't even have an author. The author is the Arbinger Institute. So talk about oh. humility. But it's an extraordinarily powerful little book. Uh, it's a book that is about how we essentially lie to ourselves. That's the self-deception part by blaming the things that go wrong on other people. It, it's set in a workplace context, but this is life uh, stuff as well. And it's done through a novel. I'm not going to say it's great fiction or great art, but it makes it quite gripping and mm. quite a page turner. But it is deep psychological interpersonal truths are conveyed in a palatable and quite actionable way. Love it. All right. So last question for you. I normally ask about career advice at the end here, but maybe <laughs> we'll go back to this topic of psychological yeah. safety for especially those people in talent development, learning development, looking for ways to influence the organization, influence their leaders, and try to create this culture of psychological safety. What's one more piece of advice you would give? Inquiry. It's just inquiry driven by genuine curiosity has got to dominate your conversations. It is so tempting, as we were describing before, it's so tempting, so natural to just fall into, here's what I think, here's how I, I think it. And just, I think it's also important to let people know that this is hard. It's supposed to be hard, right? Interpersonal understanding, making progress in a messy world. This is hard. The soft stuff is the hard stuff. So be generous, not only with yourself, but with your colleagues. We're going to make mistakes. We're not going to get it right every time. Yes. Growth mindset, right? Where you have, yeah. a, have yeah. a mindset that you can go out and fail and try different things. 
I love that. Amy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Of course, once again, Amy Edmondson, Harvard Business School professor, author of the best-selling book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Hope our listeners go out and check that out. And Amy, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. It was a delight talking with you. Absolutely. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again and take care.